episode 393 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our clients, our institutions, uh, our family, friends, not even our pets, maybe not even ours three weeks from today. Joining me on the News Roundup are Megan Stiefel, who's the uh, Chief Strategy Office for the Institute for Security and Technology, Nick Weaver at uh, UC Berkeley, Mark McCarthy, who teaches technology law and policy at Georgetown, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Let's start. It's an Another week, and there's another major antitrust bill coming out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. This one even seems to have an even bigger bipartisan uh, majority behind it, maybe because it's a little more narrowly focused. Mark, what did judiciary do last week? So they, they passed out a bill that's called the Open App Markets Bill. It's And it passed out, as you said, a pretty... A solid vote of 20 to 2, although that did hide some serious controversy in the markup, and it's not clear that it's got a an open path to the floor yet. A, an amendment on security was rejected by 7 to 15. Uh, one of Ted Cruz's amendments uh, about prohibiting discrimination based on viewpoint was defeated narrowly, 10 to 12, and the bill passed out. Uh, what's it trying to do? It's basically, it's giving... Um, uh, app developers more freedom to reach their users without control by Apple and Google, who run the the relevant app stores, and in particular without them having to pay the uh, exorbitant fee of thirty uh, percent commission uh, to the app store providers. It, it gets at some of the same issues as the um, Epic Apple lawsuit. One requirement, for example, is uh, to allow the use of other payments. I mean, if they used Visa, that would charge 2 to 3%, not 30%. And there's actually a law that requires this already on the books. It's at the, the, the Dutch have had this law in effect, so is the South Koreans. But for the Dutch law, Apple is complying it by charging a commission of 27% for the developers that use other payment systems, thereby recreating the 30% commission that it was effectively getting for you itself. You know, isn't that such, such um, a middle finger to what uh, the regulators that it's going to blow up on them? Yeah, but it shows a, a really serious problem with this whole approach, which is I think legislators think that they they can pass a single piece of legislation, uh, like a one-off antitrust fix, and then just walk mm-hmm. away, and, and everything will be just fine. But it's pretty clear that the companies will react to the bill as it's passed, and they'll try to evade its provisions. And really, to make this system work, they're going to have to establish a supervisory regulatory agency to ride herd uh, on the app stores. And this legislation doesn't provide for that, really. It gives some authority to the FTC, but not full regulatory authority. To write new regulations saying, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. Right. You can't do that. You can't do this. I mean, the other issue that's sitting around there is this uh, content moderation issue that Ted Cruz raised explicitly, and he said this was aimed at what the app stores did last year when they deleted Parler. It was defeated, but boy, it's raising this issue of content moderation in in the context of a competition policy bill. And I I think we're going to see more of that in the future as these bills move forward. But really, the kicker is not those issues. It's the requirement for the, the operating system providers to allow users to load programs from any source whether it's another website or another app store, 
not just from their own proprietary apps. Apple, Apple says, um, you know, we do a lot of checking for security and the safety of these apps. And if you let people sideload stuff, they'll just get crap off the internet and they'll be sorry. This, there's something to be said for that. I mean, our friend, uh, security analyst Bruce Schnapp reminds us that we actually know what such a world would look like. It's the world of personal computing that we've lived with since the 1970s. So if you want the mobile app world to look a little bit like that, this is the bill for you. I do think they, they make a mistake in not simultaneously providing something to replace the security measures that uh, Apple and Google are trying to provide. And I do think the fix is probably to put a privacy and security regulatory overlay on this. If you don't do that, I think the security issues are going to get a lot more serious in the mobile world. There, there are people on this podcast who know more about security issues than I do. But just saying to the world, you know, caveat emptor, you figure it out uh, and have no agency that can actually impose controls in this area. I think that's a recipe for substantial market failures. So I would hope that the bill would be amended to add something to provide for greater privacy and security. And speaking of the privacy issue, I mean, Facebook just took a hit because of the privacy rules and the App Store. It estimated that it's going to lose $10 billion this year because of the new requirements for user privacy. But once Facebook has the authority under the new bill to say you can download the mobile app for Facebook only from us, it's going to strip away all of those privacy protections and uh, it'll be able to recoup that $10 billion hit in the following year. No, they won't. Why is that, Nick? It's because the security from the App Store made a lot more difference in the early days than it does now. These days, the apps themselves are very restricted by the phone OS. So they're running in what we call a sandbox, a very limited environment. And so, for example, with what Facebook is objecting to is not the tracking in the Facebook app, but the third-party apps feeding the data to Facebook. Losing that feed has been what's disrupted them. But so many of these constraints are enforced by the phone not the app store these days. And and how much of how much yeah, of that constraint is enforced by the phone? Do you have to actually say yes I want to be followed for your phone to allow that feature from other apps? Yes. Okay. So things like location, that, that's exact, that's exactly, ID, etc., those are enforced by the phone more than the app store these days. And so that, 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 that's exactly what Facebook could change. They, they can no, say to they the can't. rest of the world, if, if you have an app that you want to uh, provide to users, you know, come to our new app store where there'll be no restrictions like this and you'll be able to follow people as much as you want. So I, I, I do no, think this no, is... No, the, the problem is, is the restrictions are not being enforced purely by the app store. They're being enforced by the phone as well. Yeah. And so I do agree with you. There needs to be proper legislation and regulation on the privacy impacts. Okay. But I don't think the security nightmare is the one that Apple wants to make out because... We are not dealing with the personal computer where a application can do everything, but a model right from the start where applications are far more constrained and sandboxed. And so Apple can, can constrain what, what them further the, and further. As it, as it, if it doesn't like the fact that other people have app stores, they can start doing more and more restriction through the phone and then 
issuing credentials to people saying, yes, your app is okay, but they can have their own set of rules, maybe even a 30% commission if you want all of those uh, credentials. Not necessarily. That's one of those things that you have to be very aware of on regulation. But as long as the API and is the same for app stores, regardless of the source, that prevents Apple from pulling that game. What about the Apple and Google rule right now that prevents loading of apps that interfere with the operation of other apps? That's, a, that's an app store rule. No, but that is also enforced by the operating system. That if you want to access data belonging to another app, the phone does not let you do that. So although that's a rule from the app store, the enforcement's actually on the phone. So I think it's worth pointing out for those who worry about self-dealing that, yeah, it's going to cost Facebook $10 billion, and it's probably going to make Apple 2 or $3 billion in their new ad business, the growth of their new ad business, because people who want ads are now going to be working through the Apple system because Facebook can't give them access to the people and the data that they want. So I, uh, this was a very self-interested move on, on Apple's part to, to come up with rules on you know, whether people are allowed to be followed. All right, let's move on. We have to acknowledge that there could be a war and a, and a big one in Europe any minute now, and there's a cyber element to it that we're not seeing much of. But Megan, uh, Ann Neuberger, uh, who's the Deputy National Security for Cyber, went to Europe to talk about how to beef up Ukraine's cyber defenses. Uh, I have to say that anything they do in the next two weeks is probably not going to make that big a difference, is it? I wouldn't think so. No, this, um, I would argue, is, is largely symbolic in the sense of, of yes, uh, Ms. Neuberger, who you forgot the emerging tech part of her title. Right. You're uh, right. Steward. So, you know, the spokesperson, whomever was giving the, the press readout, described the effort as a, first she was in Brussels meeting with the NATO and EU officials. And the quote purpose was deterring, to discuss deterring, disrupting, and responding to further Russian aggression against Ukraine, neighboring states in our respective countries. So she also is reported to have visited Warsaw and talked with some Baltic uh, partners there and met virtually with French and German officials. You know, I think we know, we all know that Ukraine and other uh, satellites, former satellites, right, were, um, are often the playground uh, and the proving ground for Russian information and influence operations. Most notably, though, or most recently, not necessarily most notably, was last week, there was a phishing attack reportedly using the National Health Service that, that went down. And then that was preceded two days before that by another phishing attack looking at or leveraging the judiciary. And let's not forget also that around the 14th of January, a number of Ukrainian governmental websites were defaced. So important for her to be off showing face in the region and rallying the partners and, and friends here. But I, I don't think there was like some secret thing that she brought with yeah. her and, and you know, hand delivered to the Ukrainians to help them protect their networks better. So I, th I think, you know, look, if there's a shooting war and tens of thousands of refugees and deaths, we're not going to be spending a lot of time talking about even the most egregious cyber exploits. Later, three years from now, there'll be a post-mortem to say what worked and what didn't, and we'll get a better feel for what the Russians did on the cyber front, assuming there is a war. But I, you know, when people are actually raining shells on cities, nobody's spending a lot of time on 
how cyber is making the life harder in those cities. So my guess is this will give us a better feel for eventually for how important cyber is, but I'm guessing that we're not going to actually learn it in real time. Agreed. I wish that were the case. I wish we would actually do these after-action reports. I'm not sure that we have done so well. Well, I suppose that's right. Those it in the past, depends but... on, on, on what government is participating in that after-action report. Uh, if it's the new pro-Russian Ukrainian government installed at Tank Point, we won't learn a lot. That's true. All right, Nick, I sort of feel as though this is, this may not be the week where GDPR and the privacy issue, the transatlantic privacy issue, Actually, the entire roof fell in, but we lost a few rafters. I, uh, <laughs> you can start to see a real disaster shaping up for U.S. industry in Europe that has always been on the horizon, but now is directly overhead. Uh, the Data Protection Agency in Belgium went after IAB, which is a industry advertising group, which basically provided the protocol for how to do real-time bidding, how to exchange information in a data protection safe way in Europe. And the Belgians said, no, not only are you wrong, you're so wrong, we're going to fine you hundreds of thousands of dollars, which for a trade association is a lot of money. And that's just the beginning. How bad is this? Well, I think what it is, is it's that the GDPR, if you read the intent, and the goal is basically to eliminate surveillance advertising. That's the goal. And I think it's finally starting to take effect. And truth be told, when things like publications have shifted away from a surveillance model for ads to a more model based on the content of the page itself, they haven't seen significant losses in revenue. It does, however, really uh, disrupt the Facebook-Google duopoly. And I think we're starting to see this. And you see this in related issues, like why does Google offer free services like Translate, Fonts, etc.? They're about providing tracking data for the Google Hoover, and the GDPR folks are starting to hammer down on that use, which is something I agree with. So, for example, for the longest time, the British NIH had Google Translate hooks on all their pages. And frankly speaking, I want Google to not know that I'm reading about herpes only if I like it. And between Facebook's like button and the like and Google's useful services, this is all about collecting surveillance capitalism data and the Europeans are fighting back against it. So they are. There was a decision out of a German court that Google fonts, and it went right after, right after the website. It didn't go after Google. It went after a Google after a website that just had chosen a font that Google makes available. And to get the font, when you go there, the your computer goes to download the font from a Google uh, server, and <clears throat> Google takes note of where you are when you download it so it knows more about you which is the same thing when you use google translate it knows where you're translating what what site you're on when you translate it to critically it isn't just what site you're on that you translate it's what site you're on that has translate enabled yeah right you're right and so all these google services are about 
tracking that you visit a page where the service is enabled. So if it takes fonts from Google, it isn't just reporting to Google that you're grabbing the font. It is reporting to Google every page on that site that you visit. And the same is true for the like button, although I don't know that I see that as much because, you know, who cares about whether people like stuff for Facebook. But it's the same basic mechanism for gathering information. And there's a very plausible argument that as long as IP addresses or other information that you can gather from a cookie uh, is personal data, all of that requires that you get consent before the information is sent. And that is the pitch, that that's the position that the courts and the data protection authorities are taking. I have this question. If the fact that your IP, you're at a particular IP address and you ask for content from another server, if asking for that content and giving your IP address so it can be downloaded is a violation of GDPR. And that's what I think the Belgians said because the IP address is personal data. Um, isn't that an attack on the entire structure of the internet? That's what we always do. We always ask a server to give us information and in exchange, we give them the IP address so they know where to deliver it. And if, if that's something that can't be done without consent, either you're going to infer consent from the fact that we're on the internet, or you're going to break the internet in Europe. Or what you're going to do is limit the usage of that data. Because if you just use the IP addresses only used to send the data back, fine. But that's not what the Googles and the Facebooks of the world are doing. What they're doing is tying that activity to you personally for purposes of advertising. Well, but that's that's not... And so it isn't... I suppose you're right. There's the argument that uh, they know enough to tie your IP address, but not everybody does. So maybe an IP address is only personal data in the hands of Google and Facebook, but not in the hands of your average web server. Is that the argument? And also... It's not just that. It's what is the data being used for? The data being IP addresses being used for the minimum purpose of returning the requested result versus being logged and data mined and analyzed in the surveillance capitalism uh, that's, pipeline. That, that, that's a completely BS interpretation of GDPR, an interpretation of convenience, but it, you can't find that in GDPR. It says it's personal data. You sent personal data. You collected personal data from this person. It, you got the IP address. That strikes me as it, it's not about the processing at that point. You've already obtained and processed it to some degree, and that requires consent. That would be the my take on this. But I think the point is that the Europeans are apparently very serious about an interpretation of GDPR that is going to be profound in its consequences. Uh, and we don't know exactly what those consequences are, but the obvious, you know, Facebook has said in its filings with the SEC that it may have to withdraw from the European market. Certainly Google, ha. well, you know, uh, Google has said, <laughs> I, uh, Google hasn't said this, but Google could withdraw translate. They could withdraw fonts. They could just say, Fine, if that's the way you feel about it, then we won't provide those those services because we're not getting the information. There's no reason for them to provide the services if they're not getting something out of it. So I, I do think that 
the consequences are not just going to be felt in Silicon Valley. There are going to be some real problems in Europe as well. Stuart, on your, I think you're right to be really worried about where this thing is going. But on your particular example of the uh, IP address, I think Nick is right. I mean, there's a legal basis for that under the GDPR. If the, the information is needed in order to provide a service that you've requested, you don't have to ask for consent. That's a perfectly legitimate legal basis. So on that particular example, I think they're okay. Uh, on the larger question, though, I think you're right that there's a but coming fonts, clash. It, it, fonts is a service you're requesting. No, but you are not using the IP address just for that purpose. The problem is Google is using oh, it for other saying. purposes yes. as well. That, 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 then it's pretty rough to say to the website, we think Google is doing bad things with the data that uh, uh, is being sent from your site, so we're fining you. I, I, I just don't think that the effort to limit this to a few people in Silicon Valley is going to go is going to work. And the same thing is true for the IAB case where they said, you know, that IP address is personal data and you, you did not get sufficient consent from people when they come to your site to use their IP address. And that's not just being used by Google, it's by being used by every single advertiser, many of whom have only pseudonymous access to identities. Anyway, I, I, I do think this has always been the problem for GDPR and all of the whole data protections as human rights business, it sounds great, but it proves too much. And we're going to start seeing it prove too much as regulators get more and more enthusiastic uh, about attacking really pretty much anything involving, as you say, surveillance capitalism. And it's distinctly possible that it can be killed. I mean, Facebook is reeling, I have to say. They're, they're decline in their stock value, a loss of users for the first time ever, the Apple iOS stuff. I think Google is in much better shape to continue to provide surveillance capitalism than Facebook because it is much more of a first party service provider than Facebook. A, Facebook can advertise to people based on who they are, but it doesn't know what they're buying. Uh, and the people who know what they're buying are in a better position, I suspect, to, to serve ads. And also, the other thing is just the page you are viewing on, those ads you can serve based on the page content and not have to worry about the GDPR stuff at, yep. at all. And for the publisher, it seems to actually be a better deal. So that, that brings me to Google Topics, and I don't know if you want to talk about it. I thought that was interesting because, I mean, it'll get a rough reception because it's Google proposing to do anything, but to say, basically, instead of third-party cookies, we're going to assign a topic to the sites you visit and put five topics that we think you're interested in out of 400 into a database along with one completely made up topic and then serve one of those from the last three weeks, one of, you know, one from every week for the last three weeks to advertisers saying, this is somebody who's interested in these three things. What will you pay to advertise to them? And that's all that people know. Everybody will be able to see what topics are being offered for them because it'll be stored essentially in their browser. I actually think that that sounds, if you weren't starting from a poisoned territory, that would be pretty privacy protective and surprisingly Google protective. Uh, I don't know if it's going to work, but it, it did strike me as a pretty big 
change in tone from Google. Right. But I think that's because they're worried about the the GDPR stuff yep. and the backlash in the US as well. Like California is trying to do GDPR light. And so far, all we get is annoying cookie pop-ups. Yeah. That's, um, that's the principal contribution that the, uh, the European Union has made. But the thing is... You still get the creep out of the ads following you around the web. And from the point of view of the publishers, from the publisher's viewpoint, it's what topics are on the page is likely to be the most relevant for advertising anyway. Yes. Although, and, and I suppose you can, I don't know if that's part of topics. You'd think it would be because you, you know what page you're on. So you can say, okay, so I, they're obviously interested in this topic because they're here. Uh, plus, we can also see that they're interested in mountaineering and cooking. So you could add that to the topics as part of it. I, I think the, the problem with saying, well, let's just go back and live in a world where Vanity Fair has better ads than uh, Weightlifter Monthly is that the, the buyers of ads don't care enough to redo that system and they aren't completely confident in it as an insight into the customers at the site. So I doubt we're going to just go back and say, why don't we just rely on the publishers and say, anybody who's reading the, the, the Sunday Times must have $200,000 in disposable income. All right, let's move on. American Airlines is suing the points guy over an app that, as far as I can tell, just takes all of your frequent flyer miles and puts them on one app together so you can figure out, you know, how many points you have. And to do that, of course, it has to log into all of your points systems. American Airlines said that is 16 kinds of illegal and sued the points guy. Megan, are they right? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, the user, the, the, you know, the, the, the frequent flyer, right, is, a, is allowing, granting access, consenting to the use of its passwords and handing it over. But according to, the, to American Airlines and their cease and desist order, that's a sort of not within the scope of their terms of service for the airline uh, frequent so flyer. are not allowed so, to share their, their login uh, because yes, American yes. Airlines has a business interest in keeping them on that site. Yeah. That sounds like a CFAA violation, sort of, uh, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and they call it trespass. Yeah. So they're basically saying, you're coming on without permission because you got permission from somebody who doesn't have our permission even though they have our permission to come to the site they don't have our permission to let anybody else in yes so there are also a number of other claims under trademark infringement and copyright infringement but yes it's for, for our purposes here we're, we're thinking about the cfaa but also you know interestingly the points guy has preemptively sued american airlines in delaware claiming that the airline was attempting to block the media platform providing the cost and time-saving benefit to its consumers okay. so as you noted, American is seeking an injunction, yeah, and they're seeking statutory damages for trademark and copyright violations. You see, this feels like a very thin case to me. Uh, you know, they've got eight different yeah. violations, which always is a giveaway that maybe they aren't sure any one of them will stick. Uh, the trespass thing yeah. is even worse than CFAA, but they did it first because CFAA, the idea that violating somebody's terms of service is a violation of the CFAA is increasingly discredited doctrine. 
trademark yes. infringement. You know, they, they're going to have to show confusion, a likelihood of confusion. And I don't think anybody goes to the points guy to, 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 to actually book a flight. Uh, you know, everybody knows that that's about your points. So I just, I, I, and copyright is even worse. I mean, to say they have a copyright in their trademark is a confession that they have no case. So my guess is they lose. Maybe they thought he didn't have enough budget to fight them in uh, court. And so they could do this. But otherwise, I'm betting on the points guy. Me too. Okay, uh, Mark, I, you had a piece saying that the metaverse is going to sooner or later have its own content moderation rules and a good thing too. And of course, you cited the fact that Spotify has been embroiled in its own content moderation fight over whether Joe Rogan can interview whoever he wants, even if they're crazy. And that fight has produced, you know, has left everybody a little bit bruised, but still Spotify and Rogan are hanging together. Why do you think this is going to come to the metaverse? Well, you know, Joe Rogan was just the initial impetus for this thought, but Spotify is clearly getting into the content moderation game. I mean, it's not silencing Joe Rogan at this point, but it is saying that they should have some clear lines around content and they should take action uh, when those lines are crossed. That's what it's saying. And it's doing some pretty standard content moderation things like like warning labels. And and so I think we're going to get uh, content moderation coming to podcast. I think it's... Oh, um, God. We're, we're doomed. It's, it's we're doomed. <laughs> It's, it's, it's coming. It's coming to 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 virtual reality already. I mean, Facebook just announced today that it's going to enforce a safe zone of four feet around avatars in its Oculus virtual reality. So there reality can't be games. any virtual rapes. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the rape in cyberspace is coming back to uh, to haunt us all over again. And then you've got the Canadian truckers who they raised ten million dollars for their protest that turned disruptive last week. And and after that happened, uh, GoFundMe said, we'll give the, the money to a charity of the organizers choosing. And then under pressure, they decided to refund the money instead. But it's pretty clear that they're involved in applying content moderation standards for their fundraising oh, come on. Efforts. Let's, let's face up. They're, pretty- they're, they're, they're applying lefty politics to their <laughs> users with enthusiasm. Right. And, yeah, and basically saying, we will not provide support to you. You don't get the benefit of our technology if you do things we don't like. And we all, at some point... It, 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 at some level, think that that makes some sense. You know, no one really wants preaching of violence to be in their feed or, you know, sexual come-ons and a variety of things that, that most people would agree just make for a crappy environment. But GoFundMe, that's, they're not providing a platform for people to exchange views. They're letting people send money to folks that they want to send money to. And GoFundMe is saying, oh, no, we're smarter than you are. We're better than you are. You, uh, we're going to take the money and give it to somebody else. And now they say, well, we'll give it back to you if you ask for it. No, they'll give it back now. But look, I mean, apps, podcasts, fundraising apps, virtual reality, the metaverse, they're all um, engaged in the same sort of control over what the people who use their platform can do and say. And as a result, these controversies of content moderation are going to follow them. 
I mean, Ted Cruz's amendment in the in that markup is just the start of the issue. He, he was saying app stores have to be viewpoint neutral. He lost the the vote, but it was yeah, a very no, close. No, I think one. he's going to win that vote think uh, that, sooner or later. Uh, that is my guess, uh, and and it couldn't happen to a nicer my, bunch of lefty politicians. That, that, my sense is that if 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 you're in favor of transparency, due process, complaints procedures, and all that kind of stuff, they should apply to these new services as well as the legacy services such as social media. Social media is a legacy dying operation. And I think the new guys are the ones are the industries of the future. So if you want these kind of controls over content moderation, you've got to make sure that the rules apply to the new guys, not just the old guys. Oh, and I'm going to point out that you're going to want at least some content moderation. Otherwise, you're going to get Tentacle Porn Simulator 5000 on the App Store. Yeah, no, there's a, a, well, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure I care that much. If people want to buy it, then they'll buy it. And it doesn't bother me that it's on the App Store. I'm never going to see it. But I agree. I, I actually, Mark, will take your point that the tech enablement services and new tech enablement services are going to have content moderation. And that's what my Cybertoons cartoon for uh, uh, the month was about, in which Siri tells a guy that he can't podcast, that uh, cloth masks are virtually useless. And so he gets on the phone to talk to his friend and say, hey, you know, I can't believe it. They, They won't let me podcast that masks are virtually useless, even though they are. And Siri comes on and says, oh, you can't say that. I told you that. He said, I'm not podcasting. I'm just talking on the phone. And Siri says, yeah, and how are you doing that? So we're not at the end of the lefty employees of Silicon Valley trying to extend their uh, ability to control speech until Apple has uh, found a way to shut down uh, conversations on its phone that it doesn't like. Content moderation is here to stay, and it's going to be just about everywhere. Well, the next 10 years are going to be really interesting. I predict that sooner or later, and I suspect Facebook will turn out to be the place where it happens, a social media is going to say our future lies with making sure that the conservatives don't hate us, and they will support us if we are supporting them, and we might as well just go full Rupert Murdoch. We are providing political influence for rent in our interest and with a ideological edge to it. And they'll occupy the field. They'll become conservatives' favorite social media. They'll be protected. And there will be a kind of condominium between left-wing and right-wing media. Right-wing guys will want to take a shower every day because they don't really believe it, but they see that that's their only hope for surviving the political storms that are coming. So that's my guess. Uh, I, I am the guy who proposed the rule that you never know how evil a technology can be until the people who, until the engineers who maintain it start to fear for their jobs. Well, I think that's coming to Facebook. All right. On that happy note, uh, let's talk about, this is actually a fun one, North Korea. There's a guy out there giving interviews who says that because the North Koreans tried to hack him, he's a security engineer, he has made it his hobby to take down their internet to kind of constantly find flaws in their pretty poorly maintained internet system and bring it down again and again. Megan, I... You know, I'm kind of a hackback enthusiast, but I, I don't love this one because uh, partly because DDoS attacks are 
you know, it's like saying, oh, wow, I put a rude remark on your landing page. You know, it just doesn't change much. You stole my hackback. I mean, you beat me to it, I guess. I was going to say this is a this, this is sort of for you, but not quite, Stuart. Um, it's a hackback of a different sort, I suppose, maybe. Yes, this, this U.S.-based hacker, at least we believe that he's here, who goes by the Nick uh, PX4, was targeted in 2020, along with a number of other hackers, reportedly, by the North Koreans seeking to obtain our security researchers, meaning those here, probably elsewhere in the world, their tools and software vulnerability details. Now, our security researcher here, Mr. PX4, has claimed that the North Koreans didn't get anything off of him. But nonetheless, he was so annoyed that he's decided to target them, as you noted, through DDoS attacks. So apparently he's used, for among, among other things, uh, a known bug in the web server software that mishandles HTTPS headers. Um, and so therefore they can, these servers can easily be tipped offline. He's also reportedly found ancient versions of web soft, of Apache web software. And he's started to examine North Korea's own, as the article talks about homebrew operating system, which he asserts is probably something like an old version of Linux. Um, I think it's also a little bit funny that he has decided to automate his attacks. This is how sort of facile this, easy this is for him. Not only that, but you know he's likened this activity to a, a, a what was it a small to medium sized pen test project. Yeah, well, he's giving um, free pen test services to the North Koreans. <laughs> yes, yes, but there is you know a, a couple of other funny bits about this is that, um, you know he's now stood up something called the. Um, it's a dark money website uh, called The Funk Project, which stands for FU North Korea, <laughs> uh, trying to get more money for his firepower project. Interestingly, though, you know, one of your other frequent guests, Mr. David Itell, notes that he's not so sure that this is such a good act- idea if someone for Mr. PX4, because if there is, uh, you know, if the USIC has a presence on these servers, he, Mr. PX4's DDoS attacks are likely frustrating the efforts of the USG to leverage those points uh, and gain some greater detail. Yeah. But, you know, he's, among other things, annoyed not only with the North Koreans, but also apparently our government because they haven't come to, to offer him any assistance in, in having been targeted by the hermit regime. So yeah, he would be, it's, he it's would mostly, be way better off if, in, and he might even make more money uh, if he just uh, found all these flaws and emailed them to the National Security Agency or Cyber Command. And you know, maybe there should be a uh, hack of the North Koreans or a funk uh, bounty program by which uh, we just pay a hundred bucks every time somebody finds another flaw in North Korea's uh, infrastructure. It's bound to be useful sometime. Okay. Um, we're going to try to move along. Nick, uh, there was a fuss over IDME. IDME is an anti-fraud company that the IRS is going to be using for people who want to get online and interact with their tax system, requiring you to actually do a video chat uh, or at least a live on-camera version of yourself so that IDME can keep track of your identity and make sure that somebody uh, else is not logging on as you to, to read and collect your refund. And it got the CEO in trouble, uh, partly because he said something that wasn't true, or at least was very badly mangled. Uh, what's the story there? Okay. So the TLDR is... IDME is a horrid solution for the problem at hand, but it's better than what they had before. So the problem is, how do you create a new account at the IRS? 
in the previous method is what's known as knowledge-based authentication. You've had to deal with this with the credit report where it's like, which one of these was your mortgage? Right. Which one of these was your lender, et cetera? How big was your refund? The problem is with that... Yeah. The problem is with the knowledge-based authentication is for the most part, the bad guys actually have an easier time than the good guys. That God, I don't remember where that car loan was from. Um, and, but the bad guys have commercial services for them that just leverage, uh, pirate access to the databases that contain this information. So it's one of those cases where the bad guys actually have an easier time. So ID me, their pitch is to replace this process for account creation with a process where you go with your webcam, you show your ID, blah, blah, blah. They're kind of a skeevy company. They've done a lot of business by basically adding friction to the unemployment process in various states and making it harder for people to sign up for unemployment is viewed as a way to save money. So, Well, there's massive them. fraud in, that, in, uh, in, in the unemployment programs too. Yeah. There's massive fraud and making it hard to sign up for. The, kill two birds with one stone. Okay. The, the thing is, truth be told, of the commercial services currently available, I think the one for getting access to the IRS account, ID me, is the best of the bad lot because it's certainly way better than the knowledge-based authentication stuff. So what happened to- What they really- What, what happened to the, with the CEO? Why is- you know, ID me has been what it's been for a while, and I'm sure there are people who hate it on principle, but he stepped in it in a particular way on the kind of face recognition that it does. Yeah, and the thing is, face recognition is currently a third rail right now, even when it's appropriate. Like, the only thing I want from AR glasses, this is somebody else's quote, but I agree with it, is the ability to play Netflix on any flat surface and a tool that recognizes who I'm talking to and puts their name above their head. <laughs> oh my God, talk about a dystopia. Yes, you're right. Face recognition has acquired... You know, look, the privacy groups live, their business model is to find a new technology and make it toxic before it's successful. And they mostly fail, but they're succeeding with face recognition. Well, these days, the other thing is hyper cryptocurrencies. The EFF has gone all total in on that space, uh, much to my distress. Well, yes. Okay. So I, I, he, he said, I do, you know, we don't do one to many when he was asked about, I think, a bias. He said, we do one to one uh, and one to many is more problematic. But then it turned out that they did do some one to many comparisons. Uh, one to many is where you have a picture and then you look at a, a bunch of other pictures to see which one matches. Uh, one to one is where you've got a, an ID and you've got a person in front of you and you say, does the ID match the face I have in front of me? That is easier and it's less likely to have bias problems. And if there are bias problems, they're not going to hurt people as much. And the, the problem was, I think, that they had an internal check where they check to see, is this a face we've seen before in our ID me system? And that was a one-to-many yes. check, and he should not have 
disavowed it entirely. Uh, and they kind of have to do that because they don't have access directly to the DMVs. That if they had access to the DMVs, they could verify the person against their photo with the DMV. Right. But instead, they're relying on the photo on the physical driver's license. And thanks to drinking age limitations, there's a robust ecology in creating fake IDs. So they have to have that as a additional check if their real goal is to prevent fraud, because otherwise they don't have the necessary information. Yeah. Ten, ten years ago, when I was at DHS, we worked closely on implementing face recognition precisely for the DMVs, because if you live in a world of point systems for driver's licenses, it's really valuable to have many driver's licenses and you present them bent depending on how many points they already have on them. And the only way to stop that is to do face recognition from state to state to see if the same person has showed up with a different name in that state. And so the the states have been doing this for a while, not in a very organized way, but I assume they are now pretty organized about preventing people from having multiple state IDs, which is part of why you would want to go to them to get your uh, validation of identity. What is really needed is we need a government agency that has a huge number of people that have electronic devices. And what you do is you present a QR code and your ID. They uh, scan the QR code, verify your ID, and click yes. This is something that we need the Postal Service to do, that if it was a buck to for the flag down the postman or go into the post office and have the verify ID, this would so simplify the problem of online You don't need identity. the postal service. The postal service, you only need the postal service if you need somebody who's got an office in every town. You just need somebody with yeah. the infrastructure. And, and that's the thing. The postal service is the one government agency that has the infrastructure for it already. I, I, don't th I disagree. Actually, DHS, the one thing DHS is better at than any other government agency is doing ID checks of one sort or another. They do ID checks at the border. They do ID checks for immigration. They do ID checks for TSA. They're actually set up to do this, but they also have a bunch of antibodies against doing it for fear of getting attacked from a private privacy direction where they don't really care about the results of the privacy intrusion. They also don't have the physical locations. You need the physical locations for uh, ID check service. No, you don't. Just simply because. No, you, you, uh, you, just, you just say, uh, here, uh, here's our QR code that connects. Take a picture of that and your ID. And yourself, right? It's so much more robust to actually have it be a in-person check. That could be. That's uh, the thing. Uh, in-person uh, check. Having it be in-person means that people can't just get a free shot at trying to scam the, the machine over and over again, because eventually they'll get arrested. Yeah. All right. So you brought up Crypto Bros. Megan, there was a brief flurry of Crypto Bro lobbying. The Crypto Bros were objecting to a provision in a pending bill that said that the treasury had the ability to very quickly move in and stop money transmitters from engaging in business that the treasury thought was essentially money laundering or criminal. And there was a flap over it. 
the flap actually had an impact, and it now appears that the Representative Himes has withdrawn his original amendment and proposed something new. I was a little unsure how big a deal this was. I mean, we were told it was the end of the cryptocurrency for a while. Uh, right. But what was the underlying issue? And do you think that the Himes revision is going to change anything? So as I think everybody knows, there's lots of stuff going on in Congress on China, right? I don't know how many right. bills there are, but over five, more than a handful. And this one was called the Ameri- or is called the America Competes Act. And I understand it. I think it's largely a Democratic uh, proposal. If it's, if it's in the um, House, it's and among its yeah. pro- well, I guess a, the, a version of this bill passed the that Senate. Was, that was a, that the, was the a broader more bipartisan bill. Uh, this one yeah. is yeah. A, a wish list for Democrats that they're going to send up and try to reach a compromise through the process of negotiation with the Senate. And Nancy Pelosi basically said, why should I give away anything to the Republicans when I'm just going to have to negotiate with them after we pass it? So that's that's where the bills are. So this was a House proposal. Himes is an intelligence committee guy, reasonably sharp, wanted to do something about crypto for the Treasury. What was it that they were proposing and what's the fallback compromise? Right. So the provision here, which was not in the what you just described from some of the prior history around something like this broader set of provisions had the cryptocurrency industry quite nervous because it would allow or expand Treasury's authority to monitor and freeze accounts at financial institutions, which of course includes certain cryptocurrency entities. And among other things, it would remove the notice and comment period under Treasury's authorities and give it more latitude to therein uh, identify the transmittal of funds as as potentially money laundering, problematic under money laundering provisions, and therefore allow folks, uh, treasuries to seize uh, and essentially shut off access to folks' accounts. So as you noted, the cryptocurrency lobby went nuts and said, among other things, you know, this is incredible unchecked power given to Treasury to do so. It puts a ban on transactions and has significant privacy implications. And I, you know, I don't disagree with that. I think there's a little bit of, of bloody shirt here, but in the end, they do appear to have persuaded him that this notice and comment period has to remain, which I think of course it would have to you, remain. You, you, I mean, kind of wonder, is that so that's it? Now there's going to be notice and comment before uh, Treasury exercises this completely discretionary and unchecked power. Right. Well, I think they've also backed off this idea. It sounds as if there's still negotiation or maybe it's been removed around whether or not to, quote, expand the Treasury's authority or whether, in fact, the authority doesn't need to be touched because it's expansive enough to cover these types of entities that are in part the targets of this provision. So yes, there's a there was a manager's amendment that was offered. And I think actually, I don't know if it was late last week or early this week is when they're supposed to take up the bill. So we'll see. Um, no, no point in anybody uh, uh, who isn't a lobbyist getting too excited about this until they uh, see what's happening uh, in Congress, in the negotiations uh, between the House and the Senate, because the House bill is is just a, a placeholder for the bill that will finally come out of the, those negotiations. So we'll see. All right, quickly, let's go through a few. Two of the people who are left in Google's ethical AI unit left to join a woman who had already left. She says she was fired. They say they accepted her resignation. Now there are two more who have left. Nick, 30 seconds on that. She was fired under California law. The resignation excuse was just an excuse. And basically, it's Google's ethics washing of their AI side has failed. And and so they'll just have to... A good thing, too, because first, 
Anytime somebody talks about technology and ethics, they mean imposing left-wing values on the technology. And in this case, it couldn't be more obvious. The effort to, to characterize AI as subject to bias problems is mostly a fraud. I, I looked at no, the- No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Stuart, I'm sorry, it is. It... I looked at the face recognition stuff, and there were some- there were actual biases, if you want to say five or 10% worse on certain dark skin or women uh, 10 years ago. All of that has changed. It was a it was a narrative, again, imposed by people whose business model is to toxify technology as it's arising so that they can impose a whole bunch of regulatory restraints on it that fit their value system. And the ethical AI guys, Google is better off without them. All right. Uh, earn it. Uh, <laughs> the earn it bill is back. And it does only a little about encryption, which is what made it a fuss. Um, it, it essentially says you don't get Section 230 protection for child sexual abuse material, which you kind of don't anyway. So I'm not sure where this bill is going. Yeah, I'm not sure where it's going either. It does make it clear that there's no 230 defense for charges under state law for advertising, promoting, presenting, distributing, or soliciting child sexual abuse material. So both civil and criminal under state law. So it may have some real effect in that area if it ever gets put into law. But they've tried to protect themselves against the encryption charge by saying nothing in this will uh, provide a cause of action if a provider uses end-to-end -end encryption. Nevertheless, the, 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 the human rights groups and the civil liberties groups ha have objected to its reintroduction. So where it goes from here is not clear. We will have to see how the Senate Judiciary Committee thinks about this, and they may want to move forward with it. They succeeded last year in passing it out of committee. It never got to the Senate, so they may Speaking try Speaking of trafficking, I noticed an article that was only in right-wing media, but appears to be quoting from a Facebook policy or a meta policy, that they, Meta has de decided that human smuggling is something that they're going to allow solicitation of on their platform. Now, that what that means is they've decided they're not going to let the traffickers advertise, yo, we can get you across the border for just 3000 bucks. But if somebody wants to be smuggled across the border, they can put an ad or an otherwise solicit help from the traffickers on Meta and Meta won't take it down. I strikes me that they're right on the edge of conspiracy charges for violation of immigration law. So I'm surprised they're willing to, to make that decision. All right. Last item. Wall Street Journal revealed that it had been hacked by China. Uh, the only thing that I thought was surprising about this is they announced it in their SEC filings and then said, and it looks as though it's been going on since 2020. So that tells us, I guess, that the, the Chinese who were uh, blamed by the Wall Street Journal were hacking the journal and reading stories before they were published for two years. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks to Megan, Nick, and Mark for joining us. Send us questions, feedback at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Rate the show, leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. iTunes for as long as we're allowed to appear there. And thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 393 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm -hmm.